Content warning. Discussions of violence, torture and death that some people may find disturbing. Welcome to the Newcastle Witches podcast. Thank you for listening. This is an original podcast created by Candle and Bell. This is our first episode, In Search of Witches. Every episode of this podcast is going to be dedicated to one of the victims of the Newcastle Witch Trials. This episode is dedicated to Matthew Bulmer. So we have been joined for our first episode by Joe Bath, who has a PhD in 17th century violent crime. She has worked in schools and museums covering everything from the Stone Age to Florence Nightingale and has published five books, including one on the witch trials. She also lives with a cat, a harvest mouse and some leeches. I would like to ask more, but I'm not sure if I want to know about the leeches. So, <laughs> I have good reasons. They're educational leeches. They're multi-period. can be anything from a Roman leech to a 19th century leech, as required. <laughs> that just opens so many doors into things that I don't think this podcast is for. But like, I'm now sitting here like, oh my gosh, leeches. <laughs> anyway, yes, we brought you in as kind of our introduction to the Newcastle Witch Trials. Right. And she seemed to be our local expert in the matter. Um, yeah, uh, maybe. One of them. Yeah, I can live with that. <laughs> um, so if it's okay, um, what started the trials in Newcastle? Well, Newcastle at the time, we're talking 1649, is an absolute mess. There's a load of things going on, but you know, this is a place that has 13 years previously lost half its population in a plague. Five years previously has been under a huge siege and people have been starving in the streets. It's still got a military presence in the town. Um, It's a bad harvest that year. There are raiders on the coast that year. And there is a new sort of Puritan mood in town that people are more uh, inclined to try and get rid of all the sin from their town and have this sort of godly town while they can. And of course, the normal processes of law have broken down, which means the town has and the town council has more Um, ability, more power to deal with these things themselves than they normally would, instead of having to send these problems to central government uh, officials. So So everybody is essentially existing in a state of panic and trauma and... Mm. Yeah, everyone who's in town is either new there or or is someone who has lived through and, you know, seen a lot of stuff and the, the problem with times like that, even by the standards of the 17th century, the problems of time like that is that you were you look for people to blame, and the religious culture of the time is definitely giving you some options for that. And uh, it, it all actually does start with the people. The people do send a petition to the um, the corporation of Newcastle, who are the, effectively the council of Newcastle, and uh, and ask if they could deal with the witch problem, please. And that was the uh, before the um, the trials happened, wasn't it? That was early. That that was in January that year, so it was a, f- a few months before. Oh wow! Uh, uh, early forty nine. Okay. Yeah. So what was in the the letter specifically? Do we know? We don't really know because we just have it recorded in the council book that this letter was received and that the council promised that they would do all they could to deal with the problem, and then they they sit on it for a few months, um, perhaps really not knowing what to do about it. And then it seems to be when they hear about a witch finder who is doing good business in Berwick that they suddenly think, ah, that's that's a route we can follow to deal with this. Do we know if it was done to appease people or was it done because they themselves agreed 
there might be a bridge problem. I think they themselves agreed. Uh, this this is a fairly new bunch of people into power for the most part. Quite a lot of them are of quite strong Puritan beliefs. Others we know are mostly in it for themselves, but at least one crops up in a later witch trial, um, 25 or so years later, as somebody who is definitely ready to believe people's stories. So there are definitely believers among the number. Oh, wow. I'm just digesting the information again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they... They call the the witch finder, the witch pricker. Yeah, yeah. And he's he accepts the role. Oh, absolutely. I mean, he, he accepts it gleefully, I imagine, given how much money he's being paid. He's getting quite um, a lot of money, wasn't he? He is. 20 shillings of one pound per witch is what he charges both in Berwick and in Newcastle, which is one of the reasons we can be pretty sure, as well as the timing, that it's actually the same person. We can't go on names because, annoyingly, none of the documents on the subject ever give his name, uh, which is quite strange. But... Yes, we can be pretty sure it's the same chap. He has already found 30 witches in Berwick um, for a pound a pop and therefore is the ideal man for the job. So yes, they just send up a couple of constables to go and, and uh, offer him more money in the bigger, richer town of Newcastle. So the petition happened earlier in the year and we know the accused witches rescued in the August. How long did the witch pricker kind of, what was his process like and how long did that last for of him trialling people? Oh, the, the execution is actually the following year. So we're, we're talking 1649, all of the trials happen and then the execution is, is in 1650. Mm -hmm. So when he comes in, um, they, they just set a date and it's all done in the space of one very chaotic afternoon, I think, that... Uh, everyone is told, there is a bellman goes out and tells everyone that at a certain time, on a certain day, the witch finder will be here. He's effectively saying, bring your witches, anyone you suspect. We've got an expert here who will be able to tell you whether that person you suspect really is a witch. And uh, that, that's what happens. 30 or possibly even more women end up in the Guildhall ready to be tried. Now, most of them are locals, we think, although we've got woefully little information about most of them. We know that at least one of them comes from uh, North Northumberland, but she is sort of listed and mentioned differently, so it's possible she's the only one that isn't local. I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. That it, So it isn't law enforcement that goes out and arrests people. It's somebody says, well, oh, I think my neighbour mm. is a witch. It's, it's just, yes, and anyone who suspects somebody of being a witch bring them in and, and these people are not going to go willingly to do that you know this this is not um there's no upside for the woman involved to go and go through this process really um there may even have been some military involvement because we know the trial itself was overseen by lieutenant colonel hobson who was the deputy of the uh, military force that was still in place in newcastle at that time so it is, I mean, there's no such thing as a police force at this date anyway. If you're accusing someone, you, you do it yourself. Um, but the constables can get involved in dragging people in. And it's not that big a town at the time. It's the other thing we have to bear in mind. With the depredations of the plague and then the Civil War, you're looking at a population of perhaps 12,000 people, which means that those 30 women represent roughly one in a hundred, one percent of all the adult women of Newcastle. Oh wow. 
so pretty much everyone would have known one of them at that point. It's it's not a small thing. You can just I'm just imagining how frightening and horrible it would have been mm. the scenes that would have been caused because of this and they're dragged are they put in prison or are they taken straight to trial um they are for the most part they go straight to the guild hall we know that the one that has come from north northumberland has had a quite different path <clears throat> we know that she has been in prison for some time um we can assume probably in berwick and then in morpeth and then probably brought from morpeth to the castle keep because the castle keep is technically part of northumberland not part of newcastle by the laws of the day and she will have been kept there. But the others, as far as we know, are just dragged into the Guildhall building and immediately have their trial, if that is the right word for it. Because, of course, we're not talking anything like a normal legal trial, even by the standards of the day. We're not talking judges and juries and things. This is just a test or test for witchcraft that the witch prickery is doing. And it was witch pricking that, we, that happened up here for these trials. Yes, and witch pricking is... Not actually that common in England. When, when it does turn up, it's usually in these kind of weird, extreme cases. But it is common in Scotland. And the Scottish witch pricker has obviously brought down his own ideas. Um, we don't quite know what he's doing. Uh, we Our only good evidence for all of this is from a book by a chap called Ralph Gardner. And the problem with that is that Ralph Gardner hates the corporation. The entire book, the purpose of the book is to say... The corporation are doing everything wrong and amongst that one of the things he's saying is they did wrong when they invited this scottish witch finder in so we have to take it with a little pinch of salt but he has got eyewitness statements and nothing he says is sort of contradicted by anybody else so we we just tend to assume that it's, it's probably about right and gardner says that yes pins are used he says that uh, the witches are each pricked looking obviously for the, the witch's mark, the place where the familiar has suckled, which will not bleed or not feel pain. Um, we don't know, it's quite possible the witch finder is using retractable pins. We know that those did exist in Scotland. Uh, or it's possible that he is just using a very clever sleight of hand. The one case that he does talk in detail um, about what happened, there is a certain suggestion that he's sort of dropping the girl's skirts at the same time as he's pushing the pin in so that it would actually be very hard to see whether he really had pricked her or not or not at all. A bit like a magician. Yes, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There might be, uh, while this hand is doing something, the other hand is supposedly pricking. And then he says, so did you feel that? And you say no. And that's because he hasn't actually pricked you at all. There's a fair chance there's some of that going on as well. Yeah. I'm I'm trying to understand what it, what you mean by pricking. Like, is it with like a needle, like what we use nowadays to sew, or is it something bigger? Is it just a sharp object? Um, there, oh, it's it's not a sewing needle. It hasn't got the, the point on the end, but it's it's more like a large pin, like oh, okay. a pin of a couple of inches long. Let's say, um, it's not. Uh, anyone who's seen the Witchfinder General will have will have got the idea that uh, witch pricking involves sort of hammering iron spikes into people. That that is entirely a hammer horror idea uh, but you know it's, it's a it's a decent sized pin and it's designed to draw blood and make you feel pain and if it doesn't do both of those things then they would suggest that uh, that means that the place is a, a bit of your body that's been messed up by having uh, your familiar suckle on it so was it that they believe well that they believed that they didn't have blood in their bodies like what was the kind of thinking behind pricking people and drawing blood 
But it, it's just that that little bit of you, because a little tiny demon has been suckling on it, um, won't have normal bodily reactions anymore. And conveniently, of course, quite a lot of uh, older women in the 17th century are very likely to have little bits of their body that for one reason or another you know, don't bleed or don't feel pain. So it's, it's a nice, easy test. So the thing about witchcraft, of course, is it's very hard to find physical evidence for it. So they're always on the lookout for ways that they can physically check, is this person a witch? And looking for witches' marks is, as I say, it's not that big a deal in England, but it does come up now and then. Um, and it's all connected to this idea of familiars, that if you're a witch, you will have a spirit or a creature, in England usually some sort of animal, that is your connection to the devil, and that's how you get your powers. And in return, you have to feed it. So you feed it on your blood. Sounds like it's a... I don't know. doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? <laughs> <laughs> very few of the, uh, the the perks you get for actually choosing to do a deal with the devil seem particularly worthwhile when you really look at them. No, it doesn't um, seem worth it at all. I'm not sure if I'd want my dog or cat kind of suckling on my, my elbow or something <laughs> on my neck. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, the cat tries occasionally, I think. Draws blood, at least. But, uh... <laughs> so... I'm just trying to... Okay, so somebody gets pricked somewhere mm -hmm. but and doesn't feel pain. So yeah. maybe he is using styrofoam, but what exactly... Like, what, what was he doing? It's like, is he lifting skirts? Is he just pricking people on their face or in their... Well, anywhere, is, anywhere counts. Okay. But they, they say that... Um, well, there, there are documents that say that on the privy parts is one of the places where these are most likely to exist. Um we don't know that this witch pricker is going that far, but again, the one detailed description we do have, he is um, lifting her skirts up to her waist um, and then sort of dropping her skirts while pricking her, probably in the thigh. Um, and uh, in, in the confusion, he's probably not pricking her at all. Uh, but yes, com commonly you're looking at um, sometimes neck and face, but commonly buttocks and that sort of thing. I mean, obviously no one wants the kind of private parts exposed. And if it happened today, you'd be taken aback by that. But I can imagine even back then with how kind of covered up they tended to be, like what a shock that would have been not only for the person, but kind of for the people like watching the trial itself. Yes, yes. And I think it, this being an English case, I think people probably wouldn't have known what to expect. Whereas in Scotland, the stories probably went round that this was what a pricker did. But if you're a, an average Newcastle lady at that point, you probably have no idea what you're getting yourself into uh, when you go into that room. And again, that one case we know about, we, we know that she blushed like like crazy through... through um, Fright and embarrassment, I believe, or frightened, no, frightened shame. Yes. Through frightened shame, um, all the blood rushed to her head, which, you know, perfectly reasonable response to having somebody do that. I would say probably fright, shame and anger at that point, but uh, Gardner can't see it that way. Yeah, because she got, um, she was accused, wasn't she? Like they said, right, that's it. Like she's not a witch because, well, she is a witch, sorry, because she bled, but they trialed her again, didn't they? That's, that's right, yes. There's this one odd um anomaly in Gardner's description that there are these these 30 women that go in for trial and 28 of them the witch finder says yes that person's a witch I think it would be a little suspicious if he said it was all 30 it looked like he wasn't trying so 28 of them and uh, of those 28 one of them is uh, 
perhaps younger and prettier, catches the eye of Lieutenant Colonel Hobson, who's in charge. And he says, basically, look look at her. She's she's not a witch. Is she? She's a, a personable and good-like lady. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> that's, that's what it says. Oh, personable God. and good-like lady is, is the description. She can't possibly be a witch. So she can't be a witch because he has a crush on her. Yes. Oh, my goodness. And the, the, the witch finder initially says, well, you, you, know, you, you can't tell just by looking at them. And the people of Newcastle say she is a witch, so I will try her. And he does, and he, he lifts her skirts up and uh, does his sleight of hand, probably. And she's she's blushing furiously. And uh, Hobson, of course, has been watching this with interest. It's best not to think too much about that. Uh, and and he says, no, 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 She, uh, you, you have to do it again. You have to do it in a way that isn't shameful to her because what you are doing is made all the blood rush to her head. And she basically hasn't got enough blood for both ends. Um, and therefore the pricking won't work. And he's absolutely convinced that the, the blood has just gone to the other end. And so he makes the witchfinder do it again and makes him do it in a more decorous manner. And this time, of course, because he's watching very closely whatever sleight of hand or, or trick was going on, it can't happen. So he has to let that one go. Bet he wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> I, I would assume not. No, because that's another pound gone, that is. Yeah, for every witch. I was going to say, is it every witch? So would it be the 27 that he got money for? Yes. Not the 30? No, it was 20, the 27. 27, yeah. That's he's, a lot of money. He's found 27 witches. Yes, I mean, the, the average weekly wage at this point for a skilled craftsman would be somewhere uh, a little under half a pound. So he's getting something like two to three weeks skilled craftsman's wages per witch. Well, if you add that up as well, he's, yeah, he's covered. Yeah. And he's he's going so, around the country at this point as well. Like, he's been in different places, hasn't he? Like, Berwick. Well, he, 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 he's obviously come down from Scotland. He's gone to Berwick. Um, he's, it's possible he's in County Durham because there is a reference to somebody doing witch pricking of six ladies, of whom three hang in Durham shortly before. And... There are, there are a couple of cases in Carlisle, and there's one woman who definitely is killed in um, Gateshead. So he almost certainly hops over the river uh, briefly. Doesn't seem to get any further south than that. But the, the Gateshead one is interesting. So we, we know about that because it is in the um, Sexton's records for St Mary's, uh, that money paid for holding the trial and uh, money paid for the burying of the witch. And they may even have found her. There is, uh, they, when they did some excavations around the outside of St. Mary's not long ago, they found a middle-aged lady buried separate from everybody else and from the right date. So it's either something to do with the Civil War, perhaps, or given how far away she is, she may actually be the, the Gateshead witch. I believe that's a story I was told when I was younger. Yeah, I was told that story when I went to visit, I think it was St. Mary's, mm. as a child. And they told us that story about when they were building the sage, they were digging up different areas. Yeah, that, that'll be it. Um, of course, the, the others, um, it's not the full 27, but I assume we'll come to that later, are buried at St. Andrew's. Although the St. Andrew's churchyard has shrunk so much over the years that they are almost certainly long gone. Because oh, right. the churchyard patch originally, the graveyard would have stretched a lot further out. So, 27 women yes. 
obviously not as attractive as the one that got away. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> what happens to them next? Is that like they're condemned? This they failed at this test. Sort of, except as I say, the corporation are more or less making this up as they go along. <sighs> Normally, anything that was a um, an executable offence, capital offence would be dealt with by the assizes judges who would come once a year in great pomp and ceremony and declare guilt and then the person would be executed straight away. They haven't got that. They don't know when the next going to get that because of the, the civil war and the Commonwealth just sort of finding its feet. So they have to work out, are we going to execute these people immediately or are we going to do something else? And we don't know why, but they decide to sit on it for a bit. So 27 women who are then found guilty by the witch finder and they're there for, for several months and we don't really understand quite what happened during that time. Uh, what we can say is that the number that are executed a few months later is far smaller. We can't be sure why. There are two obvious uh, scenarios here. One is that the jail may have suffered from jail fever and the others may just have died in the interim and then they wouldn't have shown up in the record at all. We don't ever see any of them later in the record, so that is quite feasible. The other possibility is that they managed to persuade the corporation at a later point that they actually weren't witches and shouldn't be there. It, it would not be unlikely if something like the testimony of your local vicar saying, no, 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 that, that woman can't possibly be a witch. You know, she uh, put, puts the flowers out every week. There, and, you, know, you, you might at that point be let go because it was also ad hoc and made up. But we do know that uh, 16 women, uh, no, sorry, 15 women and one man are executed. Uh, they have to build a special gallows for it. And that is one of the largest single hangings of witches anywhere in England. So just as a question as well, um, jail fever, is it just, what is jail fever? They they just use it to describe what could be any number of actual diseases that sweep through jails. Could be something like typhoid, for instance. That that would be a common one, or diphtheria, something like that, which go gets into a jail with the poor sanitary conditions and will kill anyone who doesn't have a very strong constitution. So yes, inside the jails where people were staying, it, it would be very unpleasant. We know that in uh, Newcastle Castle, for instance, where some people were imprisoned. It's described at the time that the uh, it, there was leaks everywhere and it was so damp that the water came in and uh, you couldn't lie on the floor because the water was, was settled on the floor in some places. Um, so that's not a very nice place to have to stay for any length of time. So it's not that kind of... Out of 27 for only 15 of them to go, it's not that unlikely that the rest of them did possibly pass away? It's, it's, I, I would think there's a fair chance at least some of them did, yes. We, we know that some of them, as I say, efforts were made to give witness statements for some. So the chances are that that also succeeded in some cases. So it's, it's probably a mix of the two, um, what actually happened to the rest. Were those records lost or were they just not kept at the time? They may well not have been kept or, well, I imagine there would have been jail lists at the time, but our, our records from the corporation are fairly poor from that period in, in general. Uh, we have the Common Council book where they're explaining what they're doing to an extent and we have a little bit of information about who gets tried for what but 
it's as I say they're making it up as they go along so they're not keeping good records and this is something we're going to touch on um, much later on in the in the podcast but I think that further sort of accentuates the tragedy of this is that a lot of the, the people who were accused um, they weren't able to keep their own personal testimonies their own people that knew them and loved them weren't able to record this tragedy in their lives yes and uh, we, we don't Women are, of course, vastly underrepresented in the uh, documents from the 17th century anyway. It's a very patriarchal society. And then within that, the kind of women that this is likely to happen to are even more underrepresented. And really, the only one we know anything about at all is the, the one, um, uh, the, the miller's wife of Chatton, who turns up in someone else's witchcraft confession pamphlet. So even then, we are definitely getting somebody else's uh, version of what their little group of witches got up to. That was Jean Martin, wasn't it, from Northumberland? That's right, yes. Okay. Yes, um, and we know nothing really beyond the names on any of them, except uh, Gardner says that one of them, as she mounted the scaffold, uh, called on God to uh, demonstrate her innocence and that uh, blood gushed out of her as she was hanged and that this was taken as a mark of perhaps that one was innocent. Um, and that's the only other one that really stands out in any way from the record, from this list of names. Oh, apart from, of course, that one of them is a man. We know a little bit more about him because he's in other court cases. We know he's a butcher, and we know that he's had arguments with his neighbours over money in the past. But again, that's about it. Because, of course, the people that are being accused of witchcraft are generally of certain types of people and they are people who have uh, disagreements with their neighbours and that's why their neighbours are accusing them really. In England people aren't really concerned about whether their neighbour is you know, doing deals with the devil, that's not the point. The point is about domestic dispute and thinking that that person might be trying to do them harm, trying to make them ill. So a lot of people that are accused of witchcraft have been under suspicion by their neighbours either for witchcraft or for being a scold, being a disruptive influence for years or even decades beforehand. Wow, can you imagine like you've just fell out with your neighbour mm -hmm. and then suddenly there's this like town crier in town is going, oh yes, bring all your witches to me. Your neighbour's like, no, it's a good way to get rid of you. That's, that's <laughs> pretty much what happened, yeah, yeah. And that was, Matthew, we know that kind of happened to you, but we can suspect it possibly happen to other people as yes. well. Yes, the, the cases we have of witchcraft that happened within the court process at a later date that we can say a bit more about the circumstances where we get the statement by the accuser. So that can be if somebody hasn't, uh, somebody's gone begging and they haven't given money or somebody usually buys their cherries from someone and today they haven't, that sort of, or you know, it's, it's the equivalent of somebody not cutting their hedge or not lending their lawnmower. Um, as that would be in the, the 17th century. Almost all accusers and accused women live in the same village. When you're looking at village situations, obviously in, in a town like Newcastle, it's a bit more complicated, but the different social statuses are all living cheek by jowl, and you're going to meet people with a different sense of uh, what is right and proper between neighbours compared to what you have. And that difference is very often where the tension comes in that leads eventually to witchcraft accusations, especially in, in this time where, you know, things are hard. There's no money. Everyone is still shocked and traumatised by war and by 
famine and by pestilence and the, the whole package really yeah i was i did read somewhere that um it's thought that like 40 percent of houses in newcastle at the time didn't have a fireplace because mm. the people were kind of so poor at the time it, they, they would either have no fireplace or they would have no demonstrable income such that there was no point taxing them this so this is from the um the half tax uh, about uh, 15 years later so they went around and counted the halves in each house and most of them that they did count have one there's very few that have more than two and a lot which they just don't bother counting and that's either because the house house does not have a half at all or it's because it is demonstrable the person does not have a spare penny um, newcastle at this point has the or i've read from people who have done the figures on this has the highest uh, disproportion of wealth between the rich and the poor anywhere in England apart from London. And of course, London has the super rich. Um, and yes, Newcastle has a, a very, very steep wealth pyramid. And the people at the top being the coal owners, the um, merchants, the host men who are sort of middlemen in the, the uh, trade of the time. Uh, and also the people who get onto the corporation. So the corporation who are deciding the fate of all these women are the richest people in town by a long shot. So that's sort of the beginning of where we start this investigation, as it were, is that, you know, the city is in a state of trauma, as you said, um, and people have really awful lives mm. in looking for excuses and looking for scapegoats. Yes, like life is tough for the vast majority of people. Even if you have work in Newcastle, there is a good chance you are working in... Um, sort of labouring jobs, keelmen, dockmen, that sort of thing. And those that aren't are generally working in markets, working in shops, and it's very insecure. All of these things are very insecure. The uh, the keelmen are so such an insecure job that they, you know, if, if you're a keelman past 40 and you're still capable of working, you're considered to be doing pretty well in terms of your health and strength. It's that hard of work. Yeah. Uh, and And... There are strikes frequently and there are problems frequently with, um, well, whenever there is a war, so for instance, a war with Holland, the um, uh, the enemy will blockade the Tyne because they know that if you can't get in and out of the Tyne, then London won't get its coal and London will be struggling if it hasn't got any coal. So actually at about this period, there are warships off the Tyne and that means that you, um, anyone who was involved in the coal trade, like the keelman, just isn't going to get paid. So these were like a God-fearing people who had experienced a lot of trauma and were kind of still going through a lot of kind of horrible things at the yes, time. Yes, there's, there's not really any rebuilding going on for quite some time. There isn't really any rebuilding, I wouldn't say. In, I mean, there's, there's a few little things they start putting money into. They've started building a new guild hall because the building that all of this happens in is falling apart because it had been bombarded five years earlier, they start building the new one, which is underneath the shell of the one you can see on the quayside today. There are bits of it from the 1650s. But aside from big sort of vanity projects like that, for the ordinary people, they aren't going to feel that things get any better from that low point until probably the 1660s, 1670s. And they were looking for a scapegoat, essentially, in the end, for all of their bad their bad luck. Yes, that, that is a big part of it. And uh, 
if you look through history, there is always that tendency, particularly the harder times get, there is always that tendency to find someone to blame. Um, and the religion of the time is very much about personal enterprise and personal endeavour, and that if you're a good person, regardless of your circumstances, if you uh, are a good Christian, then you will end up doing well. It's, it's a bit like the American uh, money-making gospel of the, the modern times. That sort of thing, that a, a good Christian will end up on top. So if you are not on top, that rather implies you're not a good Christian. So there is a tendency developing that is different from 100, 200 years earlier, which says, you know, if, if you are poor, that's probably your fault. And, and at that point, maybe you'll turn to the devil because that's the only way you're going to get anything. It's kind of scary when you say it like that, because then you think of it today and you realise that attitude has not changed at all. A lot of people with money will still assume that anyone who doesn't have a lot of money isn't working hard enough or isn't doing enough, and yeah. that's why they don't have it. Yeah, that's that's definitely still there. And that form of uh, the, the connection between Protestantism and capitalism that we see, and it's... Uh, in, there's a lot of it going on in America right now that goes back to this era and that is absolutely the, the sort of lens through which you can look at what happened in which trials and then it just in those cases where it becomes a bit more of a craze and this is one of the crazes of England most English witchcraft is much more calm than this when it becomes a craze it's generally because somebody starts panicking about devil's personal involvement um, it's not just a case of one woman making another woman ill. It's a case of which is getting together, which is talking to each other. Is there a conspiracy going on? Are we safe? Is our community safe from witches? And that's when people start accusing left, right and centre. And that's essentially the fervour that yeah. is there in and that's what the, the start in, of these trials. In Newcastle, that, that, that sort of pressure cooker of all the other things that have gone wrong we need someone to blame and there's an expert coming in. And that's such a relief, isn't it? Somebody else can deal with this problem, both from the point of view of the people and the point of view of the corporation. They don't have to be responsible for sorting this anymore. There's an expert coming in. He can tell you for sure, is this person a witch or not? Do we have a problem? Then, you know, it, it takes all the burden off you, doesn't it? And it was unfortunately the people who died in the trials who were the people who kind of got the brunt of all of these horrible things that had happened to a community of people. Absolutely. So we just wanted to say a massive thank you to Joe for coming on and walking us through the Newcastle trials and kind of starting off our investigation into what happened at the time. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's been good. Thank you for listening to the Newcastle Witches podcast. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. If you want to find out more about what we spoke about in this episode and past or in future episodes... You can find us on social media, uh, Instagram, Facebook and Twitter by searching for the Newcastle Witches podcast. And there's also a dedicated page linking and profiling the many guests we have on the podcast. It's candleandbell.com slash Newcastle Witches. Please feel free to ask us any questions or if there's anything you want to know more about, then just find us on our socials and we'll reply to you there. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join us for the next episode of the Newcastle Witches podcast.